Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. I'm going to be joined by Bronx of Bushville's Dan Federico, a guest we've had on the podcast twice before. He's a very knowledgeable Yankee expert, and we're going to talk to him to preview the American League Championship Series with the Yankees taking on the Houston Astros. We're also going to do Show Me the Money NFL Picks for week number six. I had a perfect week again last week. I went 3-0 and on the picks, so I'm off to a flying start. We'll hope to keep the momentum going in week six against another Dallas Cowboys fan. My good buddy Will Smith is calling in to do the picks. Also, going to stay tuned to the end of the show for a six-two-minute drill, where I weigh in on what the Mets should be looking for in their next manager. As you remember from last week's emergency podcast, Mickey Callaway was fired by the Mets after that season. They are still looking for a new manager. I have some thoughts on what they should be prioritizing in their search. That's will be at the end of the show, but we'll get it all rolling with this week's opening tip, where we recap what was a literally insane NFL Week Five. Right after this. Third down on 18. Mahomes flushed out again all the way back. Turning the corner. Fires downfield. Caught. Touchdown. Only Mahomes. Byron Pringle. Into a 27-yard touchdown. Stop it. Stop it. You can't do this. You can't escape. You can't make these plays. You can't make these throws. Patrick Mahomes, just stop it. And we are back with this week's opening tip. That call you guys heard, courtesy of NBC Sports, Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, showcasing one of the most ridiculous touchdowns rolls you will ever see from Patrick Mahomes, scrambling for dear life on third and 18, extending the play, fires a strike into the end zone for a Byron Pringle touchdown. Ironically, the only touchdown that was scored in that game, the Colts ended up winning that football game 19-13. And that was just the kind of week it was in Week 5. I mean, everything was wacky in this league this Week 5. I mean, it was literally insane. What the hell's going on out here? We could ask that question about a lot of things. And we'll start there with that game because, I mean, the Colts are coming in this game. They're down several defenders. They end up Darius Leonard. They did not have Malik Hooker. Early in the game, Kenny Moore gets injured, and you're thinking, oh, geez, here they go again. The Chiefs are going to run all over this game, but that did not happen. The Colts won this football game because they dominated both lines of the scrimmage. The defensive line harassed Patrick Mahomes. He rolled his ankle early in the game, and that was a big difference in this football game because once he couldn't scramble and once he's more confined to the pocket, the Colts had a very, very easy time just sort of locking down the receivers. Remember, Sandy Watkins was playing hurt in that game. Demarcus Robinson didn't do too much, neither did McCole Hartman. And great win for the Colts. After getting after getting beaten up by the Raiders in Indianapolis last week, go on the road in Arrowhead, beat the Chiefs. Great job there for that for the Colts. And this has huge ramifications down the line because the Patriots look at like they're not going to lose the football game anytime soon. They beat the Redskins up, they get the Giants, they get the Jets. They're not going to play a real team until at least week eight when they deal with the Browns. But think about that for a second. The Chiefs lost this game. Now they may have to go undefeated the rest of the way to get home field because they had to beat the Patriots and win a tiebreaker against the Patriots. That's insane. But kudos to the Colts. Got the job done. Still in a tie for first place in the AFC South. Good week for them. Let's get to the locals for a minute. The Jet game. Oh, my God. What a disaster that was. And... 
Nobody thought they would beat the Eagles. Nobody did. Any sliver of hope they had of winning that game was gone when Sam Darnold was declared out on Friday. The Jets did seem to believe that they, he was going to be able to play this game. Adam Gase spent the whole week giving him all the first-team reps instead of, instead of Luke Falk. Luke Falk starts this game, looks like a deer in the headlights. The offensive line, which they juggled a little bit because Calakai Osemele was out with an injury, and they benched Brandon Shell. They put Juma Adoga at right tackle, and they put uh, Alex Lewis, the trade acquisition, in at left guard. The line got worse. They gave up 10 sacks to the Eagles that game. 10. Do you know how many the Eagles had entering this game? They had three. So they more than tripled their season output in sacks in this football game. And a great stat on Twitter after the game, courtesy of ESPN's Rich Samini, the offensive line gave up eight sacks and 12 pressures against just a four-man rush. It's not even like the Eagles are blitzing Falk a ton. The Jet line did better against the Blitz. Simple four-man communication against the rush. They could not handle it. They could not figure out these little stunts the Eagles are running. And Falk played a part in this. Falk held the ball too long on a lot of occasions, but bad offensive lines sink football seasons. This is a problem they've had for years. Mike McCagden did not devote enough resources to the offensive line. Neither did John Nizick. Neither did Mike Tannenbaum. And they are paying the price for it now. Poor Joe Douglas has his work cut out for him because... I could send all five of the starters gone, packing. That's how bad that group is right now. And why are we rushing San Darnold back to this mess? This offensive line is a disaster. They cannot block anybody. They're giving up sacks on simple stunt plays. And you want the quarterback coming off a of mono, a potentially unstable spleen to play behind this offensive line? Really? That's what we're doing here? And another demerit for Adam Gase Poor game plan once again, and I don't know what he was thinking, not even bothering to get Luke Falk ready to play this game. The odds of Sam Darnold being cleared were slim. You needed to make sure you had a chance to win this football game by giving Luke Falk all the reps he needed. Once Sam Darnold is clear for contact, that's when he should be getting all the practice reps and getting him ready for the game. He was not cleared by the doctors for contact you should have been getting Luke Falk ready for the game. Would he have played this badly? Probably not. Would he have won you the game? Probably not. But he deserved better than what he got. And Adam Gase, shame on you. You should know better than this. You really should. For a supposed offensive innovator, this team went four games without offensive touchdown. I don't care you're playing a back of quarterback. Teams this league have been doing that all season and found ways to score points. Back the Jets can't. Shows that he's not much of an innovator. Let's go on to the Giants for a minute. The Giants lose the Minnesota Vikings 28-10. I thought this would be the case. Daniel Jones, he looked like a rookie. Let's be real. He played well against the against the Bucs in his first game. Played well against the Redskins. Had some mistakes there. Made some more against the Vikings in this game. He did show you some flashes, but there were mistakes. He missed Sterling Shepard high on a wide-open touchdown in the end zone. But stuff like that's going to happen with rookie quarterbacks. Giant fans now have to remember, you know what? We can't anoint this guy yet. He's only played three football games. The people who watched him play in Tampa and beat up a bad Tampa Bay Buccaneer defense, and all of a sudden decide, oh my God, he's better than Sam Darnold. He's got the greatest things in sliced bread. Chill out, folks. 
He could still be very good. He could still be your next franchise quarterback, but he's played three football games. He's going to make rookie mistakes. That's going to happen. But the defense was a bigger concern here. The defense, which we forgot about because they won two games in a row, the Buccaneers went up and down the field on them. Should have won that game if their kicker makes a couple of field goals. The Redskins, who stink and just fired their coach this morning, that tells you how bad they've been off. They saw a real offense against Minnesota, and they got lit up, giving up 490 yards of offense. Kirk Cousins, who was so lost, last week against the Bears, we had Adam Thielen after the game complaining about Kirk Cousins' inability to hit deep balls, and Stephon Diggs asking for trades midweek. That quarterback, who could not throw his way out of a glass house if you gave him rocks and told him where to throw. He went 22 of 27, 306 yards, two touchdowns against the Giant defense. That's a problem because, you know, who's still coming up on their schedule? Tom Brady this week on short week. You have Aaron Rodgers on the schedule. You have Matthew Stafford on the schedule. You have a lot of good quarterbacks on this schedule they haven't seen yet, and that's going to be a huge issue down the road. This was a reality check for the Giants, and if you're a Giant fan, you're a big underdog in New England this week. You want your team to be competitive in this game. You don't want them to do what the Jets did or the Redskins did or the Dolphins did, which is play for a quarter and then get blown out. If your team can hang in that football game, that's progress. But expecting a win here, not likely. Let's go to some of the other games of the week. Let's go back to Thursday at the Rams-Seahawks. And Ram defense, still a concern. They, they got shredded by Russell Wilson through four touchdown passes. So a chance to win this game. At the end, they missed the game-winning field goal at the end, but great win for Seattle. They're up to 4-1. and one. The Rams, I would not start the panic meter yet. I think there's still a lot of season left. Looks like Sean McVay is figuring out what to do with Todd Gurley because they got him going more in a north-south direction, which seems to be more effective for him, and I think they have to get back to balance on offense because Jared Goff, I feel like he's a system quarterback. He'll do very well there, but he's not at a point yet where he can do it all by himself. He needs help from his running game. They have to figure that out. They have a lot of time to do that, so I would not be worried about the Rams just yet. Texans, Falcons, another incredible shootout down in Atlanta, in Houston, excuse me. Texans ended up winning that game 53-32. And if you were a fantasy owner who had Deshaun Watson or Will Fuller, celebrate good times, my friend. You are in the winner's circle this week. Yeah, I mean, Deshaun Watson throws her five touchdowns over 400 yards in the air. Will Fuller, a ridiculous 14 catches, 217 yards, three touchdowns. If you had that combination in fantasy, and I know a owner in my league that I run did this, had those two in the lineup, they basically had an automatic victory. And the Texans finally burst out on offense. They have all the tools there. It's not come together yet. It finally came together on Sunday. And Atlanta... The panic meter is now blaring for them. This is a team that was in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Now they're 1-4. They have lost a couple of bad games in a row. And the hot seat is ratcheted up for Dan Quinn. Because I know after the game, Arthur Blank gave him a vote of confidence and said, you know what, I think this coach got to figure it out. But reality check here. 
This team fired all of its coordinators in the offseason. What happens next when the team still doesn't work? It goes back to the head coach. So I would not be shocked if the Falcons struggles continue that we see a Dan Quinn firing in the middle of the season here and Atlanta's looking for a new head coach in the offseason. Go to Ravens-Steelers next down in Pittsburgh. This game, the Ravens, they did not look great. Lamar Jackson struggled through the air. He threw three interceptions. He could not complete a ton of passes, but they found it in the football game. A big key to this performance was the fact that Mason Rudolph got knocked out of the game in the third quarter by Earl Thomas on a helmet-to-helmet hit. You can argue whether Thomas should have been ejected. I'm glad they actually threw a flag on that one because they're very inconsistent with that. But that was a big turning point in that game because the Steelers were going right with the Ravens until then. They did hold the lead when the backup Delvin Hodges came in, but at the end of the day, Lamar drove him down. Tucker kicks the big pressure field goal to tie the game. Overtime, both teams get possession. Justin Tucker kicks the field goal to win the game in overtime. Ravens are 3-2, and two, but I still don't buy them. I know the division is weak. I know that they can easily win the AFC North, but I don't think they're very good. Their defense is not good. They lost a ton of pieces. They haven't really replaced them very well. And I feel like the more tape teams are getting Lamar Jackson, he'll have more games like he did yesterday than the ones he had in Week 1 and Week 2. That's my hunch. We'll see if I'm wrong there. We'll go to Raiders-Bears in London next. And if any team has turned their season around in two weeks, it's the Raiders. It's incredible because... Two weeks ago, they were 1-2. and two. They were going on the massive, lengthy road trip. And all of a sudden, they start winning football games. They go to Indianapolis, beat the Colts. That same Colt team, by the way, who went and beat Kansas City in Kansas City this week. Then they go to London for a home game, in quotes, against the Bears. And they punish the Bears in the first half. Chase Daniel looked bad in the first half. They could not move the football. The Raiders built themselves a huge lead. The Bears made it interesting late, but the Raiders held on for the win. And they come home 3-2. and two. And you know what? In the AFC, when you have a lot of wide open things going on, why not them as a playoff contender? I feel like the locker room has gotten better by the removal of Antonio Brown. The force removal of Vontez is perfect. This group is sort of coming together. Would not shock me if they are playing in January this year, considering the weak state of the AFC. And I want to touch on the Saints-Bucks. This one made no sense when I saw it on the spreads last week. The Saints were fair only three and a half points at home. They ended up winning the game comfortably against the Buccaneers. And great job by the Saints defense. Marshawn Lattimore held Mike Evans out of catch. And those of you who've had Mike Evans in fantasy know he's been going bananas the last few weeks helping win games. He went nothing no catches, no yards, three targets. Great job from the St. D there. They befuddled James Winston most of this day. And Teddy Bridgewater, he's going to make himself some money in the offseason. He wants to lead New Orleans because he's playing very efficiently. And given the state of quarterbacks in this league, we've seen how many teams are struggling to find quarterbacks. If somebody needs a starter and he's back on the market again, I would not shock me if somebody goes up and pays him a multi-year contract this time off of the stint that he's had in New Orleans. So they are 4-1. and one. They are going on the road to Jacksonville this week. Without any surprise, it's 5-1 and one after that. Speaking of the Jags and Panthers, Panthers not winning that game. And I think you have an argument here that Christian McCaffrey should be the MVP of the NFL through the early season. I mean, he dominated this football game. 
Christian McCaffrey, and I'll, I'll admit, I'm a little biased here because I have him on my fantasy team, but the dude has been nothing but a stud this entire season. Yesterday against the Carolina Panthers, he ran the ball 19 times for 176 yards and two touchdowns, which is insane. And then he also added, he had six more catches for 61 yards and another score. That's ridiculous. The dude is all over the map. So far this season, in five games, he's run for 587 yards, averaging 5.6 a carry, six touchdowns. He's got 31 passes for 279 yards, another touchdown. This guy could easily get to 1,000 1,000 on yards from scrimmage in terms of rushing and receiving. What a player he has become. And he has saved the Panthers' bacon without Cam Newton. Without him, they might be in the winless territory because no one else on the offense scares you. He is their entire offense, and teams still can't stop him. That's incredible. Let's go to, last but not least, the game of the week. Packers-Cowboys in Dallas. And, again, Aaron Rodgers owns the Cowboys. This team cannot beat the Packers in a big spot if their lives depend on it. Aaron Rodgers and the Packers are 5-0 and at Jerry World since that building opened. Yesterday wasn't even really the Aaron Rodgers show. It was Aaron Jones, who ran for four touchdowns and caught another seven balls for about 75 yards. Not a good effort from the Cowboys. And for everybody who was hyping them up at the beginning of the season, saying, oh, you know, they're the Super Bowl contenders. They'll get the best team in the NFC. They have beaten the New York uh, Giants, who were starting Eli Manning at the time. They have beaten the Washington Redskins, who just fired their head coach. And they have beaten the Miami Dolphins, who are actively tanking for Tua Tagovailoa. The two real teams they played wiped the floor with them. They pushed them all over the building. Now, we're not going to fight about them this week because they get the miserable Jets in MetLife and will go to 4-2 and two very easily, even if Sandar is in that football game. But you have to wonder, are the Cowboys frauds? They have not beaten anyone worth anything in this league. The three teams they have beaten this league have a combined record of 2-12. and 12. And the Dolphins have been outscored by 137 points this year. The Redskins have been outscored by 78. And the Giants have been outscored by 28. What are we getting out of this football team? What have we learned about them that says, oh, they're the Super Bowl contender. They are the best team in the NFC. We've learned nothing. I grant you, no Tyron Smith hurts. The offensive line is a big deal for them. They also lost Lyle Collins in this game. He went out early, but... You still have a lot of weapons on offense. So they're very talented defense. They ran to two good teams in a row and could not come up with a win against either, including Green Bay in their own building, coming off a game where they got beaten up by the Eagles. It's fair to wonder, is this the best we've gotten out of Dallas this year? Are they going to be on the bad teams and struggle mightily against the good teams? Because there are a lot of good teams still on their schedule. They only have two more games with the Giants and the Redskins. They have a game against the Jets next week, but... Apart from that, everybody else is going to be a much higher degree of difficulty. And are they capable of winning these games? Sure. But until I see it, I need to. Be- I don't believe it. I want to see them beat someone good, and then I will be convinced, okay, they are a real, real threat. And with that, I think that just about wraps up what happened this week in the NFL. A lot of crazy stuff. Up next, we will talk some ALCS with Dan Federico right after this. Have the bases loaded one out for Didi. One, two, there it goes to right. That ball, if it's fair, 
It is a fair ball. It's a grand slam. Didi Gregorius hit a grand slam that just stayed fair. Yes, indeedy. All right, we are back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. That call is her courtesy of WFAN's John Sterling. Didi Gregorius' grand slam in game two of the Yankees' ALDS sweep of the Minnesota Twins. Join me today to talk all about the Yankees ahead of this upcoming ALCS is the great Dan Federico of Bronx to Bushville, who's been on the podcast most recently at the trade deadline. Dan, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. What's going on, man? Not a whole lot. It's a good time to be a Yankee fan right now. That sweep was very impressive. Yeah, I mean, listen, that you know, leading into this uh, the Twin Series, you know, it was a hundred wood team they were going against. I know, uh, looking back in hindsight, a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, they're probably one of the worst hundred win teams, but they, they won that many games for a reason. And the Yankees, you know, did quick work with them, so it was pretty impressive. Yeah, it was very impressive. I mean, every other series in this round went five games. The Yankees took care of business three games and out. That would, I think that was very huge for them. Yeah, I mean, that, it's you know, look, looking ahead, especially on the American League side with the Rays and Astros going to five games. I mean, having this rest is, is a real big thing for the Yankees. So definitely an advantage on their side. Yeah, definitely a huge advantage on their side. So what do you think is the biggest thing we took out of this ser- first series in the Yankees? What do you think the biggest thing we learned about them is? I think that, you know, there's a couple things. All of it centered around the offense because, you know, the starting pitching, you knew they were going to not, not go very long into games, and they were going to utilize that bullpen very quickly. And that's something that was pretty formulaic throughout the four – I mean, excuse me, the three games. So that, that was kind of according to plan, and what you heard about is kind of what you saw. Now with the offense, I mean, you see Glaber Torres continuing his great season into the playoffs. You see Didi Gregorius. I mean, a lot of people thought he was going to be benched uh, heading into the playoffs, and if it wasn't for his defense, he probably wouldn't play. He stepped up big time. You've gotten a lot of contributions from Judge, Edwin Encarnacion. So the offense is doing it, and more importantly, they're they're not only using the long ball. You know, they've been hitting situationally in a lot of different uh, innings and situations. So I think that's been the most impressive that they've kind of been using situational hitting to their advantage. Yeah, Edwin Encarnacion has been unconscious in this series. The thing to me that stood out was just the Yankee defense is just so so good. I mean, they got great plays in that game three from. Uh, Labor Torres robbing hits. Aaron Judge is a great catch in right field. I think the defense has become very underrated with this team. It's going to be a huge key if they're going to get through the World Series. Yeah, I mean, especially when you think about, you know, where the Yankees were over the last couple of years. They've had uh, some pretty bad defenses uh, throughout the season. And, you know, the addition of DJ LeMayu and Gio Urshela playing pretty much every day has been uh, a huge boost to this team. Um, you know, seeing someone like Caber Maven in the outfield or, you know, Brett Gardner manning center field, even though he's a left fielder nowadays, uh, you know, judge, obviously gold glove caliber player and right. Uh, they have a lot of good things. Also, you know, can't forget Gary Sanchez improving behind the plate too. So a lot of things have gone their way, but they, they have, you know, made the necessary changes to their defensive schemes by adding these players again, like DJ and like Gio Urshela that have really paid dividends on the defensive side. Yeah, the defensive improvements are huge. One thing I think is curious to watch in the first round, something we'll have to monitor in this series, is Aaron Boone's bullpen usages. He was very aggressive with the bullpen. I mean, there are two instances in the series where he went to automatically go for one batter and then took him out to go to uh, another reliever. So do you think that he should be this aggressive or might burn them if he's not careful? I mean, I, I you know what? It's it's funny because I did think that, you know, for the most part, they, they like like I said before, the Yankees, they, they told you, they really only need the starting pitchers to go four, five innings, 
Uh, and then when you get to a five-game series, especially when you do it in three, I mean, you kind of had that leeway where you don't need your starters to go uh, that long. But now you're going to talk about a seven-game series they're about to enter. And uh, God willing for Yankees fans, if they make it to the World Series, that's another seven-game series. So, you know, I think the, the way that they used specifically Adovino, like you said, was not necessarily baffling because, you know, he's had his struggles as of late, especially in the postseason. Um, but, you know, you definitely want to – you're going to want to see more lights out of guys like that and not have to go to, you know, possibly a Jay Happer, uh, Tyler Lyons, if he's on the roster heading into uh, heading into the ALCS. So I think you're going to see him use a little bit more of a conservative approach, maybe not necessarily in terms of the starters, uh, but definitely not going to one batter for Adam Adovino. Yeah, I think one thing that has to be weighed in here is the fact that the middle of three games they could play on three straight days, which is not something that happened in the first round because the Yankees now will have to possibly use guys three days in a row. So he might have to be more cautious with how much he gets out of these guys. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's definitely something they're going to have to keep their eye on. You do have to remember that they did a great job managing the the pitch count throughout September and obviously into the playoffs. I mean, all their big guns have not been used very much. So they do have that at their disposal. Um, I, I expect them to them get used a lot, all five of them. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do. But, I mean, they, they're, they're going to be pitching a lot of big moments. So I'm expecting to see them often. Yeah, one guy who should be in the bullpen this round is CeCe Sabathie, who's over the injury. It looks like they're going to add him to the postseason roster. What do you think he can add to this team coming out of the bullpen? You know, you, you know, he's someone who, as I'm not sure if you saw, but you know, he never pitched out of the bullpen until they moved him there uh, earlier in September. So he's somebody who, you know, he's a big game pitcher. That's what he is. You, you saw what he did for Milwaukee back in the day. He did it for the Yankees. Uh, he, he's a big game pitcher. He lives up to the moment. He could still get batters out. I mean, you, you can't rely on him for multiple innings, but if you could get him in there for two innings, uh, you know, maybe go through a lineup one time if you need to, uh, he's somebody who can help. Um, I'm sure the Yankees are hoping that they may don't, they don't even have to use DC because their starters will go six innings, and you could just kind of go through with the big guns in the bullpen, as we were talking about before. But, you know, if they, I, I don't think they'll have any problem going to CC if need be. Yeah, I think the thing that with CC that's interesting is like this is an argument that Evan Roberts made on WFAN recently is the whole idea of comparing him to like 2000 David Cohn, where David Cohn was in the Yankee bullpen, didn't do much, and in the World Series you got Mike Piazza out in a big spot. So I wonder if that's something they could keep in mind for CC, where if they have a one, they need one batter out in a big middle inning, as opposed to having to go a guy like Adam, you know, that early, maybe you go to CC. Yeah, exactly. I mean, his splits are good. Um, he, he's somebody who you could see like David Cohn, who, you know, was at the end of his career. Uh, you know, kind of found himself outside of the rotation looking in going into the playoffs. So same kind of situation as DC. Um, I do think he could be relied upon. Like you said, you know, the the, the thing with Adovino in, in the ALDS, I don't think that's something the Yankees are going to be looking to use him just for a batter. So you're right. I think DC could be that guy who could come in to face a left-hander, get a big out in the sixth inning with two outs. So I, I think you, you there's a good chance you see him in that role. And uh, J.A. Happ should be the fourth starter in this series, correct? Or do you think they're going to go with an opener on the fourth game? You know, I'm still I'm still torn. I, I you know, I'm, I'm really trying to think. I, I think if Domingo Herman didn't have his uh, issues that he put himself in, um, I think they would be more prone to using an opener because he could be that bulk guy. Um, but with Sevy not being at full strength, uh, not being able to go, you know, you know, much longer than you know, possibly 80 pitches, you know, depending on where he's at. Um, I could totally see Jay Happ stepping in and giving them a few innings too as a as a starter. But then again, he could also be that bulk guy behind Chad Green. It, it's going to get tricky with the seven games because 
I feel like they're going to want Chad Green as a weapon in the later innings. That's just my guess. So if I if, if I had to guess, I do agree with you. I think Jay Happ would be the fourth starter. Yeah, it also makes me question where they're going to put Severino in there because if you feel like if you put him in game three and Happ in game four, you might be p- pushing your bullpen a lot two days in a row. So you wonder maybe they split them up and put Severino too, maybe. Yeah, well, that's that, that's the thing. I, I know they haven't announced what they're doing with the the, the rotation yet. I, I, that's a great point. I could see you know Severino kind of bump into game two just because, like you said, that that bullpen. I mean, he. He's still coming back. He's still rebounding. As the as the playoffs go on, I'm sure they're going to push him a little more. I know his limit uh, for the first game was up to around 90 pitches. I think they said, but he didn't. He still didn't look, you know, as sharp as you'd like. So it's going to be interesting to see. I know it's going to be, you know, soon they're going to announce this this pitching rotation. But I think a smart uh, the, the smart play is to kind of squeeze him into game two, just because you know you could get possible length out of Tanaka and Paxton. Yeah, the other interesting uh, storyline for a guy possibly coming back from injury is Aaron Hicks. So we thought was ruled out for the year back September. Now he wants to be on the roster. Would you put him on the roster right now based on what we know at this point? Yeah, see, that's the thing. I'm, I'm pretty shocked, like you said. All signs pointed to him being out for the year, you know, a big-time injury. And what, what I see is, you know, it's starting to trickle out today, but there hasn't been crazy movement on the Yankee side of things talking about you know, him being in a possible role, everything that came out for the most part was, you know, Hicks saying he's healthy and he's ready to go. So, uh, he, you know, he's a valuable piece. I mean, switch hitter, he could hit for power, great defender. Um, he could slide Brett Gardner into left field in late inning situations. Um, but, but at the same time, Cameron Maben played great. Um, you know, you still have Tyler Wade on the bench, Luke Voigt's still there, even though obviously one of those guys would probably get bumped, but, you know, if it comes down to it, I have gut feeling that they would put him on just because, like I said, he'd be great late inning defensive replacement like Maben, but he provides more at the plate than Maben. Uh, you know, switch hitter could kind of slot him in there. I don't think he would take time away from Brett Gardner, or you know, they would. I don't. I cannot see him being a starter, especially because it takes you know so long. He, he's been out for majority of the season, so putting him in the fire right away, I don't think that's a great idea. But his skill set could still adapt to somebody on the bench. Yeah, that was, that was my next point I was interested about because I was curious if they would go to star him and, and who's playing time he would end up taking. Most likely, I would think Stanton's probably in jeopardy because he did not hit much. And he also, like Hicks, he did not play a lot in the regular season. So he also the defense issue with Stanton out in left field where he's not as smooth there as Gardner would be. Yeah, so that, that, that's the thing. It's like, w- would they really sacrifice uh, John Carlos Stanton, who, you know, he? you're right, he's played, you know, both of them haven't played a lot, but at least Stanton has played more recently. He's kind of getting those reps in. So it's so interesting. I mean, this is a real, I mean, in a good way, but a wrench thrown into the plan just that he's ready and could play. Um, I, you know, Gardner's not getting taken out of the lineup. And uh, I just, I, I can't see Stan getting taken out either. And then, you know, you could also, of course, have the three of them, but then who are you taking out? You're taking out Gio Urshela, you're taking out Didi Pasta. So it's just so much, you know, so many wrenches thrown into play. Um, I think that the best way to go about it is that they, they do either – don't add him at all, or if they do add him, kind of just have him ready to go on the bench. Uh, possible left-hand uh, situation where they need a left-handed hitter to come up or, uh, or a defensive replacement. Let's take a look at the Astros, who survived the Rays and get through five games. They get the Yankees. This series in the past has been so defined by home field. I mean, in 2017 ALCS, the home team won all seven games. Would you expect something similar to try and continue here? You know what? It, it's, it's crazy because, like you said, it's been – you know, that, that, that's been a theme of this team, uh, these two teams going at it with each other. It's the home field advantage. And that, that's really what it comes down to, I think. 
I mean, both teams play so well in their ballparks. Their teams are so like the the, the way they set their teams obviously are just tailor made for Minute Maid Park and Yankee Stadium. So um, I could see it being you know a three three thing, just like last time, three three, and then a toss up. That seventh game, because you, you know, obviously it would favor the Astros, but that seventh game, you just never know who could come out of it on top. So it's definitely, I mean, this series was fate. So it, it just kind of seems like it was always meant to be this from the start of the season. So I think, you know, home field advantage will play a part, but that game seven is just such a, you know, wild card that you really never know how it could come out. Yeah, it absolutely is a wild card. And everybody talks about the Houston pitching with Grank, with uh, Grank Hughes going to start game one, and then you have. Uh, Verlander and Cole, two and three. But the thing I would worry about, too, people forget, their lineup is really good. I mean, they're the AL Rookie of the Year, most likely Jordan Alvarez. They have depth one through nine. That's going to be very tough for the Yankees to deal with. Yeah, well, I mean, their, their lineup is probably, you could say, one and one A with the Yankees, honestly, is the most complete lineup. I mean, they have hitters everywhere. There, there's not an easy out in that lineup. And like you said, I mean, the, the Yankee starters, they, they, they've performed well down the stretch, and you know, the playoffs, they got through the Twins, but the Astros are a different beast, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, the, the bullpen, too. I mean, you, you just never know with these with these games and this lineup that the Astros tout out there. It's just so many weapons, so deep, one through nine. Um, I, you know, you have to, if you're a Yankees fan, you have to believe in what the pitching staff has done so far. I mean, that, that can't be forgotten at all because, you know, they, they had a lot of question marks in, in going into September, you know, really since the past trade deadline. They've really answered a lot of those so you don't want to doubt them if you're a Yankees fan, but, man, that Astros lineup is tough. Obviously, before I let you go, I know that you are a big baseball insider, and the Mets have an open managerial position. Have you heard anything about the team's thinking about this? Well, you know, I, I see a lot of the um, you, you know the names out there that, that I've heard that, you know, aren't strangers to everybody. So, you know, Joe Girardi, uh, Buck Showalter, somebody who I heard is very interested in the Mets job. Uh, one name that has kind of gone under the radar is Tim Bogar. He's actually the first base coach for the Washington Nationals. He has a lot of fans in the Mets organization. He's well-respected around baseball. He's gotten some interviews, Fred coaching jobs in the past as well. So he's somebody to keep your eye on. But, I, you know, I've heard what, what comes to the Mets managerial situation. They're looking at all different types of avenues. They're looking at the older established coaches. They're looking at these young guys, uh, positional coaches. They're looking out of the box, kind of like they did with Brody Van Wagenen. So, the avenues are going to be open. A lot of teams are, uh, excuse me, a lot of coaches are going to be, you know, interested in the Mets because there are a lot of good pieces there. I know, you know, there's questions about ownership and they make some questionable moves, but they have the pitching staff. They have a lot of young positional players that are already on board. So there's a lot to like about the Mets. And I do think that there's going to be a lot of uh, candidates that are eyeing for that position. Uh, when it comes down to it, I think it's just right now, it's still a wild card. There's eight, jobs open so you know there's going to be a lot of people moving back and forth but you know as as big names as joe girardi and buck Showalter, i've heard and again as, as names maybe not known to a lot of people like tim bogar uh th- so it's going to be a wide net of people who are who are going to be interested in this job yeah it definitely jives what i've been hearing because from what the the twitter spirit is saying about the mets job sort of they're sort of casting a very wide net and they're calling a lot of people but they're going to be more selective who they bring in for in-person. I mean, as of when we're talking right now, they have four in-person lined up, which is Beltron, Girardi, uh, Danny Shelton, I believe. I forget who the fourth guy was. They have four names lined up to come in and interview. So it would not surprise me if that's something similar to see Tim Bogart add to that list. Yeah, I mean, someone like you said, like Beltron, I mean, he is well-respected around baseball. He interviewed for the Yankees job when Aaron Boone got it. He works for the Yankees right now. He's definitely one of those guys who's like an up-and-comer hot name. 
And, you know, unlike somebody like a Mickey Calloway who, who was an unknown, I know Beltran, yes, technically as a manager, he's an unknown. But I think he's got that pedigree with the players. Uh, he, he's well-respected by everybody, players, coaches, front office. So, I, I mean, he'd be a great fit. I, I love the Girardi fit for the Mets. You know, Showalter, too. I, I'm really interested to see which way they go. Yeah, if you were hiring for the Mets, who would you who would you pick? I, you know what? We just mm-hmm. mentioned two names. I think I think either Joe Girardi or Carlos Beltran. I lean toward Joe Girardi just because he does have that experience, and you kind of just went that whole went through that whole you know first managerial experience with Mickey Callaway that you know comes with its lumps. And when you're a team like the Mets, who you know Brody Van Wagenen is big on them being competitors. I mean, he said it to start last year. The run the Mets went on over the summer was great. Uh, they have the pieces there, like I said. So I think somebody, Joe Girardi, who could cut, tie the loose ends and kind of m- m- figure out everything, you know, with the bullpen and do that whole situation. Again, he's going to cost a lot of money. So that's that's another wrench into the plans. But if I'm the Mets, if I'm the Wilpons, and I, I want to win, I think I'm, gi- I'm giving Joe Girardi whatever he wants. I agree with that sentiment entirely. I My belief is simply just hire the right guy. If it's Joe Girardi, pay for Joe Girardi. If it's not, it's make, make sure you pick the right person. That's all I care about at this point. Yep, exactly. That's what it's got to be. All right, Dan Federico from Bronx to Bushville. Thanks for calling in again. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, do you want everybody to know how to follow you on social media and some of the other stuff you're up to? Yeah, so everybody could just follow me on Twitter at Dan J. Federico. I'm on there always tweeting all these playoff games, you know, staying active. Um, yeah, and I'm writing at Bronx to Bushville. You can find my stuff on there. I'm always linking it to my Twitter. So those are the two best avenues to find me. And Dan is verified on Twitter, so you can take what he takes very seriously. Dan, thanks again. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate having me on again. All right, no problem. Thank you, Dan. There you have it. That was Dan Federico from Bronx to Bushville talking all about the Yankees and a little bit of Met managerial talk there at the end. But coming up next, Show Me the Money, Week 6 NFL Picks right after this. Show me the money. All right, we are back showing the money NFL picks for week number six. Joining me on the line today is a Dallas Cowboys fan. We last heard from actually back during March Madness, my good friend Will Smith, not the actor, not the baseball player. Will, welcome. How are you? Hey, Mike. How you doing? Pretty good. Just to clarify again, you are not the San Francisco, the L.A. Dodger catcher or the actor, correct? Yep, I'm not the pitcher either. Oh, I forgot about the pitcher. That's a good one. But we get to the picks today. You are a big Dallas Cowboys fan. They've lost two games in a row. They lost to the Packers on Sunday. What was the biggest concern you had coming out of that game? Uh, that uh, our play call wasn't wasn't good at all offensively. Uh, I understand we were down quick, um, and we could we had to stop giving the ball to Zeke, which is our team's offense. Uh, but turnovers and bad penalties shot us in the foot, and before you knew it, it was thirty-one to three. And now uh, Dak Prescott, who is not the best throwing quarterback, has to throw the ball fifty-five times to try and win the game. Yeah, not ideal for Dak. Also not ideal for Dak, the fact that you have Tyron Smith out for this game. You lose Lyle Collins as well. So how big are the O-line losses you feel like for them Oh, right that's now? a huge loss. That's more. That's that's worse than losing Cooper or Zeke, in my opinion, because you, now you're starting a backup left tackle, replacing one of the best left tackles in football, and a right tackle who's probably one of the best right tackles in football so far this year. Uh doesn't look like they're major injuries. They might not be back this week, but they should be back for that Sunday night game against Philadelphia. Yeah, that's not a game in two weeks. This week they get my miserable Jets, and I think even without the two tackles, I feel like you should be fine that game because the Jets have not been very good. 
No, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I mean, I know uh, we're going to go through our picks in a little bit, but uh, I think the Cowboys easily handle it without their uh, two tackles in that game. All right, speaking of the picks, let's get to that. And last week, our good friend Phil Lombardo was here. He went 2-1 and one on his picks. He won with the Raiders uh, getting 4.5 in London against the, against the Bears. He won. He took the Patriots laying all those points in Washington. They won that. And he lost with the Chargers, who have been the bugaboo for quite a few people this year, laying getting laying six and a half against the Broncos. The Broncos ended up winning that game. I went three and zero last week. Oh yeah! Oh yeah, indeed. I went three and zero. I had the Green Bay Packers. Unfortunately, well, I took had them getting the three and a half points against your Cowboys. I had the Saints laying the five and a half against Tampa Bay. They won that game very easily, and I. My third pick, I have to look that up real quick, what I had. But I know I won that one as well. It was three in a week for me. Since you are the guest, you may go first because the challengers are actually trailing in the pick challenge. I'm 12-3 and three on the year. The challengers are 8-7. and seven. Will, you are up first. So where are you going with your first pick? Well, Phillips, if I give you one guess, where do you think I'm going? Dallas Cowboys. That is correct. I'm going to take my Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, I think the spread is 7.5 at the New York Jets this weekend. That is correct. Why are you taking that pick? Uh, you know, two games in a row, I think this is a get-right game for the Cowboys. They easily win by 14. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's a good value pick there. So where are you going with pick number two this week? Uh, pick number two, I'm going to stick with the Bugaboo uh, L.A. Chargers and take that minus seven and a half. Uh, the Chargers are a good team. Melvin Gordon's just getting back into that offense. I think that they find a way to win by 10 in this game. Uh, Melvin Gordon's going to play more than 75% of the snaps, and I think the Chargers are going to start looking like the Chargers in the second half of last season. All right, that's pick number two. The Chargers going down that well again. Pick number three, where are you going here? I'm going to take the Eagles plus three and a half against the Minnesota Vikings. I really don't think the Minnesota Vikings are a really good team. I don't think the Eagles are a good team either, but uh, I think that spread should be closer to a pick em or one or one and a half than three and a half. So I'm going to go with the Eagles getting the three and a half points. All right, that's that's Will's picks. I will go to mine real quick. Pick number one, I'm taking one that we think was an overreaction the last week. I'm taking the Kansas City Chiefs, laying five and a half at home against the Texans. Look, the Chiefs were bad last week. They were not very good against the Colts, but I don't think the Texans are as good as the Colts are. I think the Chiefs, they should be getting Tyreek Hill back for this game. That would be huge. I think Kansas City is not going to put up only 13 again. I think they're going to blow the Texans out because I don't think Houston is very good either. Give me the Chiefs laying five and a half, pick number one. That's a good pick. I would have taken that pick, too. That's a small spread for the Chiefs. I think they win by double digits in that game. All right, that's pick number one for me. Pick number two, I won with them a couple of times. I'm going back to the well again. I'm taking the Saints as one-and-a-half-point underdogs in Jacksonville. I just don't understand how they were underdogs in this football game. I mean, they are a very good team. Even without Drew Brees, their defense is dominant. I know they're on the road, but why are they underdogs the way Jaguar team is two and three and struggled mightily against the Panthers last week? Give me the Saints getting the point and a half in Jacksonville to win that game outright. I don't know. You don't believe in the Minshew magic? I do not believe the Minshew magic is enough to beat that Saint defense. That's pr- that's a problem. Yep. Should be a good game. Should be a good game. Pick number three. I said I would not pick them until they gave me a reason to, and I am actually going there this week. I'm taking the Miami Dolphins, getting the three and a half points at home against the Redskins. The Redskins just fired their head coach. They have no idea who they're playing at quarterback. They have no weapons. If there was a game for Miami to win, and they're home for this game, this is it. And I think they will find a way to do it here. So give me the Dolphins getting three and a half. Pick number three this week. Going very bold there. 
very risky by you. Is that game even on TV? I might be on. I might be on Twitch or something, but it is going to be streamed, and I do <laughs> think the uh, Dolphins will win that game. So to reset the picks here, Will is gone with the Cowboys laying seven and a half in MetLife against my pathetic Jets. The Chargers. Playing with fire, they're laying seven and a half points against the third-string quarterback Steelers on Sunday Night Football, and the Eagles getting three, three and a half against the Vikings in Minneapolis. I am going with the Chiefs laying five and a half at home against the Houston Texans. I am going with the New Orleans Saints getting a point and a half in in Jacksonville, and Miami getting three and a half at home against Washington. Two dogs week. Those are your picks for. This week's edition of Show Me the Money. Will, thanks for coming on. And just so people know, next week, Will Schneiderhand, the unofficial co-host of this podcast, will be doing the picks. Will, before I let you go, any fun predictions for the Yankees going forward? you think they have a good shot in the ALCS? I think they have a good shot in the ALCS, yeah. I'm, I, obviously, I'm a big Yankee fan. I think it's going to be a good series regardless of who they play. We'll, we'll find that out tonight as uh, the Rays play the um, the Astros in Game 5. But uh, I think they have a good shot. Their offense is clicking. Um, their pitching is starting to pitch very well. So we'll see. I think it goes six or seven, regardless of who they play. All right. Well, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. And there you have it, folks. That was Will Smith with your week six NFL picks. Up next, we'll go to this week's two-minute drill, where I laid out my thoughts on the Mets managerial candidates right after this. Mickey helped us get to this point. I think he he helped us start this progression, and I think we got better year over year with him. You know, I think at the end of the day, our, our goals right now are to accelerate our progress. We're looking for strong leadership. We're looking for a voice that can keep our, our clubhouse culture going in the right direction, can keep this team unified, um, and that can you know, accelerate our, our path. I think at the end of the day, it's, it's less about any shortcomings for Mickey, and it's more about the upside opportunities that we feel like some of the other potential candidates may may bring to us. All right, we are back this week's two-minute drill. Those words you just heard are courtesy of Mets GM Brody Van Wagenen on the conference call shortly after the Mets fired Mickey Callaway a week ago. The Mets are in the midst of a search for a new manager, and we heard some interesting thoughts from Brody there about what he's looking for in a new manager. Yes, he feels that Mickey helped them get from better from where they were. When Mickey Cowley took over the Mets, they were a 70-win team. And now, when he leaves them, they're an 86-win team. So, progress has been made. He's not wrong about that. But the way that he phrased I think it's interesting because the way he phrased it basically indicates that they did not believe that Mickey Cowley was capable of taking them to the next level. And they feel that there are people out there who can do that. And I get... I know Rick Sterling was on here last week arguing the Mets should have kept Mickey Callaway because he will learn on the job. But given the timetable this team is under, I understand the urgency to say, you know what? Like, we are this close. A good manager can put us over the top here. Let's do that and try and upgrade this spot here. Now, we haven't really gotten many interviews yet, but there has been a lot of candidates mentioned with this job or tied to it. You have the obvious ones. You have the favorites like Joe Girardi, who has been researching the Mets. You have Buck Schulter went on WFAN last week and said he'll be interested in the job. Dusty Baker is a link to this job. Mike Matheny, Joe Espada, the Astro bench coach. Carlos Beltran, former Met and regarded highly as a future manager around this league. John Franco, the legendary Met, has thrown his hat in the ring. 
Luis Rojas, I'm going to name it, and toss in there. Joe McEwing, Super Joe, former Met legend. He is in the mix, according to, according to some sources. Ron Ventura has been tied to this job in the past. The list goes on. I mean, it could be about a mile long at this point, and I think this is good. You know what? I feel like on something like this, I think you have to cast a wide net. I think you should talk to everyone and get as many perspectives as you can, but I think ideally you get a candidate in this building with experience because this job is a very difficult job. There are a lot of expectations here to win right away. And somebody who's been through the the wars before, somebody who's won before, somebody who knows what it takes to be a big league manager, will have a huge leg up considering all the extra stuff that New York brings with this job, especially the Met job because the Yankees, I get that there's pressure there having to win immediately, but you have a great group of players behind you. You have a great front office staff behind you. The Mets have different kind of pressure from their fans who want to win. The ownership, which gives you some help but may not be as financially committed as the Yankees are. You have also questions about how much involvement the front office has with them. There's a lot of side issues here with the Met job, so having someone with experience here would be fantastic. Like I have gone on record several times and said, the best fit for this job is Joe Girardi. He has won in this town with the Yankees. He's won a World Series. He took a young Yankee team to the American League Championship Series in 2017. He took a very young Marlins team very well in his one year there, one manager of the year before he got fired. And I think he is a home run pick. Buck Showalter has done a good job wherever he goes with young teams, taking them and putting them right on the brink of winning a World Series. And arguably, he would have won one with the Yankees in 94 if the strike didn't happen. So there are a lot of good options here. At the same time, I get that there's no reason why a first-time manager can't work. This year's playoffs are filled with first-time managers. Rocco Baudelli of the Twins got into 100 wins into the playoffs. Aaron Boone, unconventional choice to replace Joe Girardi, has won 100-plus games in consecutive years and has the Yankees in the ALCS on the brink of the World Series again. Dave Roberts, the first-time manager of the Dodgers, He's taking them to two straight World Series and he's on trying to get the Dodgers back to a third. I think the key here, also one more I forgot, Alex Cora, first-time manager, won the World Series of the Red Sox last year, won 108 games in the regular season. The key here is to get the right guy. Do your interviews, have Brody in there, have Jeff in there as a group come to sit and say, you know what, this is our best guy, and offer that man the job. And when you do, I beg you one thing. If this is determined that Joe Girardi or Buck Schalter is the best fit or someone of that caliber, please pay them. Please don't cheap out on us, especially in an offseason where it sounds like you're not going to spend a ton of money on players. We already bracing myself for the fact that they're going to let Zach Wheeler walk away for pretty much nothing instead of paying out to keep the super rotation together another year. That's going to irritate the hell out of me, but I would accept it if, you know what, they're going to say, we thought Joe Girardi was the best guy for the job. Here he is. We get him a contract worthy of his services. 
He's going to help get the best out of this squad, and we'll go from an 86-win team to a 93-win team. We'll be in the playoffs. We'll be fighting for a World Series. Please don't tell me that all of a sudden here's first-time manager X because you didn't want to pay Joe Girard your buck, Showalter. I'm I'm already expecting the spin if that happens. Say, oh, you know, he blew us away in the interview. He was great. He was fantastic. If you're going to do that, you had better be right because you don't have time to fool around with a manager warning on the job again. Mickey did not work out for that reason. Gabe Kapler is not working out in Philly for the same reason. First-time managers have learning curves and difficulties, even with a good bench coach behind them. That's a problem when you have a team that's built to win right now. You need a good support system behind a young manager. Either provide it or hire someone who can do it themselves and have a good coaching staff with you because if you're not spending the money on the players, getting the most out of your current talent is the key, and a good coaching staff can do that. I think, I still think Girardi's the best fit. If someone else blows him away in the room, like Aaron Boone blew the Yankees away, or Alex Cora blew away the Red Sox, that's fine. But hire the right guy for the right reasons. Don't be cheap. All right, that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Dan Federico, for calling in to talk all about the American League Championship Series and what we can look forward to in Yankees-Astros round number two in playoff edition. I also want to thank Will Smith for calling in to do the NFL picks on week number six of Show Me the Money. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at why the Jets shouldn't rush Sam Darnold back, check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just go there on any of those platforms, search for Just and the Suffering. You can look up all of our old episodes, subscribe there, and you can check out every episode we have in our archives, including last week's instant reaction to the Mickey Calais firing with Martino Puccio. Feel free to leave your feedback and star raise or help make the show even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me with the hashtag, don't be cheap. We made it to the end of this week's show. Next week, we'll continue our baseball theme here as we continue to march through the playoffs. The baseball beat will be here with me in the studio. Will Schneiderhand and Anthony Zorbellini will be on the horn to break down the latest in the playoffs. We'll do some NFL picks and more. Until then, I'll be a better week than Jets fans. Baby, oh,